Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take them out or point your devices to the Wi-Fi and turn or scroll with me to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in the first chapter again this week. Uh, last week, we started a, a new worship series uh, called uh, Urgent Messages, and the Gospel of Mark is a, well, it's a fast-paced gospel, and we are setting out to take a, a slow journey through a fast-paced gospel. Now, one thing that we notice right at the very beginning of Mark as we're reading is it, it doesn't open like Matthew or Luke. You know, Luke especially gives us the quintessential uh, greeting card look at the birth narratives of Jesus. You know, we learn about the early years of Jesus' life, how the announcement of his arrival came into being, that uh, the angel came to Mary and said, hey, this is, this is what's going to happen, and lo and behold, it happens. So we learn about Mary and, and Joseph, and, and there's a manger, and and so we have all of this imagery that surrounds the arrival of Jesus on this planet. Matthew gives us some genealogy and, and talks about, um, focuses more on the Joseph side of the story, and, and we get the wise men that come and visit. And the Mark doesn't have any of that. <clears throat> How many of you set up a, a manger or a creche at your house this you know, this last year. Yeah, quite a few of you. It's a popular thing to do. I remember uh, ours setting that up as a kid, and, you know, we'd get the pieces out and arrange them in place, and, and they're all wrapped in tissue paper and newspaper, and yeah, as we got older, we could kind of guess, oh, that's, that's a donkey, or no, this is a wise, this is my favorite wise man. I can't wait to unwrap that one. And we'd always try and guess which one was the baby Jesus, you know, unwrap, and the manger and baby Jesus, just small and tiny, and, and you could fit Jesus in your pocket. And I remember talking to a family that they set up the manger scene, and, and every so often they'd look over and baby Jesus was missing. <laughs> and they knew that their little one was carrying around Jesus in their pocket, because they were just so special. And it got me thinking that there's some theology behind how we behave sometimes. And Mark doesn't paint this picture. We get this from, from others. Uh, sometimes I think we'd rather have the baby Jesus because babies are more needy, babies are more manageable, they're smaller, we can pack them up and carry them around. You know, we can have the baby Jesus in, in our pocket. Like, like, we can exhibit some, exert some sort of control over this Jesus person. Mark doesn't give us that opportunity. Mark introduces us, and, and Jesus is already adult. He, is, he can think for himself, uh, he can act for himself, uh, and this Jesus 
has a voice and a will, and he calls us into it. That's not as manageable as a little baby Jesus that we can just kind of stuff around and carry in our pocket. And so that, that got me thinking about how the call of God in our life totally disrupts us, totally hijacks us, invades our space. He calls out to us, come and follow me. I think about some of the call stories throughout the pages of Scripture. Early on, Genesis chapter 12, there's a guy named uh, Abraham that we're introduced to. God comes to him, says, hey, Abraham, I want you to pack up everything you own, your family, I want you to leave your father's place, leave your country of origin, and I'm going to take you on a journey to somewhere else. It's not here. And out of you, I'm going to form a great nation. And through this nation that I will form around you and in your lineage, you will be the ones through which I can bless the rest of the earth. Abraham says, okay, I'll go. Second book of the Bible, Exodus. We talk about this one. Moses, you know that name. He was minding his own business. He was out in the wilderness tending a flock of sheep for his father-in-law. They were from Midian. And the Bible says that Moses had taken the flock to the backside of beyond. I mean, that's remote. And out there, in this wilderness area, he's walking along, you know, what do you do when you tend a flock of sheep in the desert? Like, imagine it's a lonely kind of existence. You get to talk to the sheep or the rock. <laughs> Which one do you choose? And Moses sees this bush that's on fire, which I imagine that's not something uncommon that you see in the wilderness. You know, things probably just catch on fire. But this bush, it was on fire, but it was not consumed. So it says that Moses turned from his path. He turned and he went over to the bush and God spoke to him out of that bush and said, Moses, I have a job for you. I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to lead my people out of slavery there. Well, then there's other kinds of call stories. We, we get to Isaiah and he's in the temple and he has this vision of, of God Almighty, high and lifted up. And it's like he's invited into the throne room of heaven and he overhears the call of God in his life. God is just speaking out. He's like, I've got all these things to do and who will go? And Isaiah says, I'm right here. I'll go, send me. And there's Jonah. Here we get to Jonah. You know, he's, he's kind of like the accidental prophet. You know, he didn't really want to go, but God you know, spoke to him and said, Hey, Jonah, I got a task for you. I want you to go preach my message of repentance to the city of Nineveh. You know, it's the pagan city. They had done all sorts of atrocities to the Jewish people, and you want me to preach repentance to them so somehow they could turn and, and be saved? And Jonah says, uh-uh, no. Goes the other direction. Of course, you know the rest of that story. God gets his attention a second time. 
rescues him. Finally, he goes, preaches that message, and the whole city gets saved. Hmm. The call of God in your life is disruptive. Just ask a guy named Saul. He was a guy, a Pharisee, who persecuted Christians, the early Jesus followers. And one day, while he was off to execute some other orders, maybe Christians uh, in the process, he is walking along uh, uh, the road towards Damascus, and this great flash of light just levels him. Jesus talks to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Is how he responds. Jesus just has this way of getting our attention. And the story that I want to read, it's just a few handful of verses this morning. I'd invite you to stand with me as we're in the Gospel of Mark. This is is a call story when, as Mark tells it, about how Jesus invites his first followers to join him. So we're Mark chapter 1 in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And just for fun, flip over to chapter 2. That was the first four. Here's the fifth. Verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Hmm. Mark... Last week, we talked about the summary, Jesus, this first message, the first sermon that Jesus preaches. Mark gives it to us in summary fashion that the, the words in verses 14 and, and 15 that, that Jesus speaks kind of give us a picture of the whole message that Jesus uh, spreads while he is in his ministry. All of the miracles, all of the healings, all of where Jesus goes and what he does is kind of fits into and elaborates on that first sermon. Jesus comes announcing the good news that God's kingdom has come near to all of them in his very person. And he calls people to Repent, turn around, go the other direction, and believe this message. And he put a little, uh, he didn't say sometime, or when you feel like it. He said the time, the time is now. 
Now is the time to respond. These are the things that we talked about last week. And so no sooner has this message left the lips of Jesus, but we see Jesus walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And most of Jesus' ministry that we read about in the Gospels takes place in these nondescript areas in a really a no-name part of the country up in the hinterlands of, of Israel around this Sea of Galilee. I mean, it, it's called a sea, but it's, it's not even a big lake. I mean, it's uh, 14 miles long and about eight miles wide. So there's thousands of lakes that are larger than this. We're not talking about a, a big place, and we're talking about a couple small, tiny villages that are along the edges of the Sea of Galilee. And this is, this is where Jesus came preaching this good news. It struck me that as Jesus went around talking to people, calling them to repentance and to believe, calling people to follow, that, that he is not in this uh, for a solo camping adventure. I mean, this isn't a prophet of old that comes and preaches their message of repentance and then disappears back off into the wilderness and kind of live a solitary life. Jesus calls people to join up with him. Part of Jesus' ministry is to create a community of people around him. Jesus knows that his mission is to announce that the kingdom of God is here, to call people to repentance and to believe, to call people to follow, and get them to go out and share the good news with other people, because someday when he is gone, somebody's going to have to carry on the responsibility of that ministry. So if he's doing this all by himself, when, when he goes away, then who is left to carry it on? And so Part of Jesus' mission, part of discipleship, part of following Jesus is joining up with this community and joining into this task. Jesus enlists the help of followers to do the same things that Jesus does out in the world. And so we're introduced to, to Peter and Andrew, their brothers, and James and John, who are brothers, and, and then this guy named Levi and and Jesus is walking along, and, and he, chooses, he chooses these guys for some reason. I was, I was thinking about this passage and the shock factor in this. It's so abrupt. Jesus calls, and they say, okay, we'll go. My former pastor, <clears throat> Dan Boone, he, uh, he says that they didn't know it yet, but this was their lucky day. Now, he said it a little bit different because he is a southern-born, uh, raised in Mississippi, so he talks southern. You get the drawl and all, and he says, down south, we would say something like, they're a bunch of lucky dogs. Then I was thinking about Garrison Keillor, good old storyteller, and he says, uh, he would describe this episode as these guys 
uh, well, they've gotten themselves into a good story. I like that one. When Jesus calls you and you respond, you've gotten yourself into a good story. Hmm. Now, if you were going to go about calling disciples for the task at hand, I mean, think about, think about what we just said. Jesus comes to announce the good news that the kingdom of God has come near, right? And he knows that he needs people to carry that message on. This is a life and death message. So if we were to go out and enlist the help of disciples, how do you think we would go about doing it this, these days? Well, we would have board meetings and committee meetings, and you know, if it's out in the employment circles, you'd have staff meetings, and you would just craft uh, a very well-worded job description, right? And you'd make sure that the position is, uh, you've got a salary grid for that, and, and you know, you'd have um, uh, headhunters go out and look for the best talent at uh, the local universities, and you would, you know, market this position at all the right websites. I mean, you are looking for a top-notch candidate, uh, one uh, who has experience and uh, good communication and organizational skills, and you would conduct hundreds of hours of interviews and background checks and reference checks and personality profiles and you would have all of that data around you because this is a big job. You got to have the right people to make sure that when Jesus is not there that, that this job is done right. So in our day and age, we'd go through all of those things. Well, Jesus didn't do any of that. <laughs> Zero. He walked around and he said, you, 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 and you. Follow me. And they did. There were no interviews. I don't read about a job description. Beforehand, he tells them, hey, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of people. That's the job description. There's no resumes that Jesus evaluated. He didn't do any reference checks. He didn't even check to see if they would be qualified to be a disciple. And the truth is, they didn't have any of those, those things, and they weren't qualified. Four of them were fishermen. They dressed like fishermen. They smelled like fishermen. They talked like fishermen. They wouldn't make our top 10 list of candidates in our search process. These were not the guys who were voted most likely to succeed as a disciple. They're just uh, kind of like us. They're just a bunch of ragtag, regular guys and gals, broken, uneducated, unpolished. But Jesus calls them, and they say, yes, we'll follow you. Peter and Andrew well, they were uh, brothers. Mark says that they were 
the kind of net that they were using, if you look at the Greek, is, is a large kind of a circular net. And they would stand on the shore and they would hurl that net out. And, and then they would gather it up and, and drag it in. And so you'd catch a few fish at a time. And so, um, you know, they probably would have been uh, <clears throat> working their way into the fishing business or... Um, you know, I don't know, maybe a lesser class than the brothers James and John, because Mark says they had a boat and hired help. And the way that James and John fished was they had, they had a boat and they were they were preparing their nets. And and part of the way that you one of the ways you fish the Sea of Galilee there is you would go out on your boat and you'd let down the net and either you'd bring it up there or you would uh, most of the time they would uh, drag it back in to shore and you could catch hundreds of fish at a time. But these are, you know, uh, lower to middle class folk and they probably had been, had fishing in the family for years and years and years and years. And all four of them drop what they're doing, and they leave it behind, and they go with Jesus. They had the sense that if, that if they did not leave what they were doing and follow Jesus at that very moment, that they would be missing out on something incredible and would regret it for the rest of their life. We have to say yes. We have to. No matter the cost, Whatever it was that Jesus spoke to them, in that moment, they knew that the only proper response was yes. So they leave the known for the unknown and go off with Jesus. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Jesus, they're walking along um, this area around the Sea of Galilee, and we'll get to the stories between this one and the the, the little, the couple verses that I read about Levi, and, and there's a little ministry that happens, but basically their journey is starting, and so they're just at the very beginning of this, this ministry, and, and the five of them are walking along, and, and Jesus sees Levi at his tax collector's booth, and he says, Levi, come, follow me. And you have to think about this. There's four newbies with Jesus. And I imagine that in the background, all four of them are saying, no, Jesus, we can't associate with that guy, Levi. If, you know, if, if you're going to call him, I'm out. We cannot be associated with this guy, Levi. Well, let me tell you why. Levi collected taxes. He was hired by Rome. Actually, he was the highest bidder to be the tax collector in that particular region. The Romans would come in and they would put it out for bid, and the highest, Rome would take the highest bidder. Who's ever willing to pay us the most money for this territory will give them the right to collect taxes for the people, uh, of the people in this region. So, Levi, obviously, was the highest bidder. He's sitting at his tax collector's booth. Well, let me tell you something about fishermen. They deal with, uh, you know, you, you, you get the fish out of the sea, and it's no value to you until you take it to the market and you cash it out. 
Well, if you're doing this every day, there are people who oftentimes would have cash on hand, and so they probably had a lot of interaction with Brother Levi. He was their tax collector. Hey, how'd you do today? Huh. I think it's worth this much. You owe me. Oh, no, 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 no. So I imagine that they had some bickering back and forth over their tax rates. I mean, we're way beyond that in these days right now, but... Um, Do you, do you understand that Jesus is choosing regular people from various places in life, and he calls out to all of them, and, he, and, he, and he, he brings us all together? And so Levi says, sure, I'll, I'll come follow you. And on a side note here, when, when Jesus calls you, you don't get to pick who the other disciples are. <laughs> Man, I knew there was a catch. You don't get to pick your family, you know, it kind of goes along those same lines. The kingdom of God is filled with all sorts of people. It's what makes it such a wonderful, beautiful, vibrant place. There's people in the kingdom, there's people who are, who are disciples and who are following Jesus that don't look around, give yourself away, but you just don't like them. There's even disciples that are following Jesus that you may have argued with before or have maybe been an adversary or, or in the category of enemy before. <clears throat> and one of the things that the kingdom of God and being a disciple of Jesus calls us to is to reconcile and to forgive and, and to figure out a way where, where love can reign in and over all of those relationships and do its holy work in us. I know, it's, that's hard. That's hard. That's a hard thing to do. And yes, it takes time. Jesus calls together this, this ragtag group of, of people and from all different backgrounds and walks of life, and he goes out and he seems to be choosing people who are maybe the least likely to succeed at the task that he wants them to do. And I mean, if they only knew the magnitude of the work that Jesus wanted them to carry on, they might have turned him down. They might have said, you know, we're just not qualified. And Jesus saw something in them that they couldn't see in themselves. Jesus looks at each one of us. He looks at you and where you think you're void and empty. Jesus sees something in you that you might overlook in yourself. All of us, all of you have been called by Jesus to be his disciples. Some of you are, are standing right there on the edge. You're, you're kind of perched on the fence, and you're like, I, I just don't know. For those of you who have outdoor cats, it's kind of like this. You let the cat up to the door, and you open the screen door, and the cat, what do you want? In or out? In or out? 
You know, you're just sitting there and you, you've heard the call of Jesus in your life or it's, it's, you maybe sit in church and you hear a message kind of like this it's, and it's all about responding to Jesus' call in our life. And let me in on a little secret. It's not just this person or that person. It's everybody that Jesus called. Check. One, two. There we go. All right. My, my emotions will be restricted, but we're back and live. Jesus calls out to everybody. He doesn't pick and choose. The call is just spread. And we get to choose to respond or not. Some of you have already said, yes. Yes, I'm in. I want to follow Jesus. And let me tell you something. He chooses you not because you're all that. Not because, you know, you know so much and you went to the right school or you have all this experience on your resume or that charming smile. Jesus chooses you because you're broken. He chooses you because when we're really honest, we would say, no, I, I don't have it altogether. He chooses you because we're just like the people we read about, the fishermen who are just regular folk trying to get through life. And Jesus says, I see something in you that I can use. And it's not all about you. It's about what you can do with me. It's about what you can do when I come in and complete you. He qualifies you with his presence. Well, in Mark, the disciples are portrayed as, well, if we're really honest, they're just human. They're dense. They don't get it. Uh, and Jesus chooses them anyway. I think he knows this about them. I mean, just in Mark, in the coming weeks when we get to it, there's a story Jesus has been teaching for a while. It's getting late. The disciples notice that, hey, that bell that rang a while ago, that was the lunch bell. And these people are hungry. And if, if we don't send them away now, they'll not be able to get home and, and get food. So, Jesus, you've got to wrap it up and, and send them off. And, and Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm not quite done yet. Uh, why don't you give them something to eat? We don't have anything to eat. What, what do you want? We don't have enough money in the, in the cash bag. What, do you want us to go to town and buy food for all? We couldn't feed this many people. There's nothing here. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? And they scrounge around and they find some fish and some bread and and they give it to Jesus. And we know it as the feeding of the 5,000, where he, he breaks what they have, and he blesses it, and, and they begin to distribute it, and lo and behold, there's enough for everybody. Jesus can take the little that we have and make it go a long way because 
He qualifies us. He fills in the rest. But the disciples, you know, we said they're a little bit dense. So that story happened in chapter 6. You flip over to chapter 8, a few pages later, a few episodes later in, the, in this ministry, and we get to this do we get to another place where Jesus is teaching this large crowd? And Jesus says, hey, why don't we make this a working lunch? And the disciples are like, where are we going to get food in the wilderness? Jesus, this is impossible. There's, there's no way that we can scrounge up enough food out here in the wilderness. I imagine Jesus just doing a face palm. Don't you get it? Just a few weeks or months or however long ago it was, didn't you see that a few fish and some bread fed a crowd of 5,000 men plus all of the women and children and families that were along? And now this crowd, don't, don't you see? Don't you get it? And then another episode in the Gospel of Mark that we'll come to, well, the disciples come back to Jesus and they think they've done a really marvelous thing. And they're like, hey, Jesus, there was this guy and he was casting out demons in your name and we told him to stop. And he did. And Jesus is like, don't you get it? If he's casting out demons in my name, who let him do it. Whoever's not against us is for us. Then there's another time, and, and the families were, were bringing their kids so that Jesus could lay his hands on them and bless them, and, and the disciples chase him away. <laughs> no, no, don't bother the master with these kids. He doesn't have time for that. Don't you get it? Let the little children come to me. And we laugh and we joke about the disciples and, and these guys. And when we're really honest, we figure out, oh, I do the same thing. I wonder how many times Jesus face palms because of things I do or say. Lord, help us. Jesus knows that we're not qualified. He knows we're broken. He knows our lives are messy. He knows we have stuff to deal with. He knows that we're going to fail and we're going to struggle and we're not always going to say the right thing. But he chooses you anyway because he sees something in you that you don't see in yourself. And when he calls you and you follow him, he qualifies you. He makes up the difference. He can take what little you have and he can make it be enough. So Jesus, he puts out this call to these very specific people in the scripture and, and we understand it, that that call goes out to all of us and so he kind of brings together this ragtag group of folk for a specific purpose and there's two things that are listed. One is Jesus calls us to follow him to come after him, to fall in line and in step with him, to, to follow in this particular context means to change our thinking and change our acting to match the thinking and acting of Jesus. 
So we learn from him and we begin to model his life uh, in our own. And so we start to see like him and, and love like he does and so on and so forth. So the goal of following in this context is that we become changed people and our lives begin to match that of our leader. Well, in today's language, the word follow gets watered down a little bit. I mean, I, I look around and I think a lot of you interact online in, in some capacity. Maybe it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. And in all of those social media settings, you can follow somebody, right? Like you can friend somebody in Facebook, which is you're kind of following their story, what's going on in their life. Whenever they post something, you follow it. You get to see it on your little feed. On Instagram, you know, a picture comes up whenever somebody posts it. And on, on Twitter, if you follow somebody, whenever they, you know, utter out a couple sentences into cyber world, you can read what they have to say. And it can be healthy. It can be fun. Um, it can be positive and uplifting but it can also turn the other direction. And so a lot of what's out there is just, it's a waste of time. It's people just use that as the venue to spew out all the hate that's built up inside. And, um, and so following in our society is, yeah, I follow them on social media. I, I interact with probably Facebook the most out of those three. Uh, Twitter's kind of fun because that limits the number of words that you can speak and so or that you can type and there's some people that you follow that you know like I'm, a, I'm unfollowing them they never have anything positive to say then there's other people like I went out and I found my friend um, his name is Bill he is a uh, a sales and marketing and business consultant that I knew from from Illinois and he is the He's the CEO, Chief Enthusiasm Officer, and his company is called um, the 800-Pound Gorilla. And uh, he is a fun guy to interact with. He always has a smile on his face. He always has something positive to say. So when I go out and I look for people or things or groups to follow, I'm looking for ones that are uplifting, that put a smile on my face or brighten my day, not the ones that want to make me punch my computer screen. And there are some of those that are out there. So there's this difference in the understanding of following, and sometimes I think we're at risk of choosing to follow Jesus like we choose to follow people on, on social media. You don't have to interact with people on social media. Social media is just a way to observe, and every so often, you know, you can comment and sort of be part of the conversation, albeit at a distance, and, and you're not really having a, a conversation per se. But, you know, if, if it makes you happy, you can click light or give it the little heart. 
You know, and I think sometimes when we hear Jesus say, hey, come follow me. Sure, Jesus, I'll like your Facebook page. I want to see what you have going on out there somewhere. And when something cool happens, post a picture of it and I'll click like. But it really doesn't require anything else of me except just to observe. And if, you know, if that really moves me, hey, great job with feeding those 5,000 people. Hey, if, if I could give you two thumbs up, dude, I would do it. You know how you healed that guy and he couldn't see yesterday and now, and now he could see? Ha, oh, I heart that. When you choose to follow Jesus in a social media capacity, it just doesn't work. That's not the language that Mark is using. When Jesus calls you to follow him and he's calling you to follow him, it's fully interactive. It's leaving behind what you have and following after him, changing your life so that your life looks like his life. And he calls us uh, not only to follow him, but he calls us to a specific thing. He says, uh, he calls us to be rescuers, and he uses this language. He says, follow me, and I'll show you how to be fishers of people. Now, most of our English translations of the, task, of the text make it sound like Jesus is just adding another task to our list. Like following him entails a checklist of a whole bunch of things. Please don't understand Jesus' call in your life to be task-driven. To fish for people sounds like a task. To be fishers of people means that you change your identity to surround that particular calling in your life. It's not about what you do, it's about who you become when Jesus asks you to become fishers of, of people. But that's really an interesting metaphor, isn't it? I want you to fish for people. And all metaphors break down at, at some point or another. There's not going to be any artificial luring. There's no bait. We're not gill netting here. There's no filleting. There's no pan frying. No, this particular kind of fishing is designed to give life and freedom to people. Let me think about it. Literally speaking, when do you fish for people? when they're drowning, when they're flailing around in the water, and you notice, and you find the little white ring with the rope attached to it, and you throw that ring out to them, and they grab onto that, and you reel them in. That's when you fish for people is when they are in trouble. The kind of fishing that Jesus calls us into is to go out and fish for people who are flailing around and struggling and drowning in life. The Old Testament actually uses this kind of language. To fish for people is not new to the New Testament. This was language that had been circulating around back in Jeremiah. I think it was chapter 16 when the, the people are struggling and they are um, 
in exile, and they're facing God's impending judgment. It says that God will send out fishermen to help them, to rescue them, to pull them out. In biblical language, when we talk about the sea, the deep, the waters, the wind, the waves, metaphorically we're talking about sin and evil and chaos. And when sin sets in in our life and wraps its tentacles around our neck like seaweed and begins to pull us down into the deep that leads to death, Jesus says, I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of people, where you can cast that lifeline out and you can rescue people from the deep. Hmm. That's a good metaphor right there. Maybe this one will help you out. How many of you have, um, how many of you have a fish aquarium at home? No fish aquarium? Wow. <laughs> wow. No fish aquariums in here. How many of you have seen a fish aquarium? Yes, all right. Wow, bomb that one. <laughs> some small, some large, they kind of create a boundary. It's like a cage for fish. And a lot of, if you have a fish aquarium or you ever have had one or if you visited one at somebody else's house, once in a while, you'll look in and, and it'll look kind of greenish. There's a little film that's... Uh, coming up the side of the glass, and if you inspect the plants closely, the artificial ones, there's this layer of fuzz. <laughs> that and, you know, in, the, in the water, starts to get murky, and, you know, fishing back in the mid... We, everybody out here, you know, we have the nice, clear waters, well, most of it, um, but you get to... You get to rivers like the Mississippi River, and it is just cloudy and murky, and you're casting out your line into who knows what, and if you pull in a fish, you're like, I don't know if I want to eat that thing. Aquariums get like this, and the fish, I don't think, are really happy about living in water that doesn't have oxygen in it, and so they start to suffocate. And that's what sin does to our life. It, it suffocates us. It puts us in prison and it chokes this life out of us. And sin baits us into doing things that are, well, they're just bad for us. And they leave us with this empty feeling. And I, th I think we're like these dying fish that are swimming around in a cloudy, disgusting aquarium. And Jesus says... I want you to fish for people who are in this aquarium, and I want you to yank them out of there, and I want you to release them into the clear, clean, free waters of the great lakes of the kingdom of God. That's, that's your new vocation. That's your new identity. It's not a task that, you know, I think I'm going to go fishing next week, Thursday at 2 o'clock. And then after that, I don't know, because my fishing license is going to expire and I have to think about, you know, am I going to pay the new fees or not? It's not a task. It's an identity. It's a calling. I will teach you to be fishers of people. Jesus' invitation to fish is to gather people 
and to rescue them from the prison of living in a fallen, sinful world. No more selling dead fish for profit. Now you will fish for people and set them free into new life. That's what his message is to the first fishermen who followed him. That's what his message is to us. And Mark says, (laughs) this is incredible. Mark says, they followed him immediately. Immediately. There's no questions that are documented for us. There was no side commentary. There, there was no uh, interrogation of Jesus about what this new lifestyle would entail. There was no, hey, you know what, that sounds great. Sign me up, but I got to give two weeks' notice. My dad's in the boat. We're fishing right now. We can't just leave him there. They did, James and John. Leave dad and the hired hand in the boat, and they followed. The call of Jesus in your life comes out, and he confronts you where you are. And if you remember, the, first, the very first thing that he said in his very first sermon was, the time is now. And so he casts that question out. He casts that command. He casts that call out to all of us. Come. Follow me. I will show you how to be fishers of people. He'll hijack your life. It'll never be the same. But it'll be the most awesome thing that you ever do. Not always going to be easy. The disciples had a fair amount of struggle. And Jesus never promised them that the life would be easy. But it'll be rewarding because it's doing the work of Jesus. And the highest calling that a person can receive is to become partners with God in what he's doing right now. And he's calling you into that. And he wants to know, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond? You know, I could keep going. Maybe I'm having a little trouble finishing up this message. I think you're going to have to go out and finish it for me. People of God said, amen.